محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد I welcome you to our 101st Sira episode and our finale for this series I have been teaching the Sira Alhamdulillah for uh, an entire decade of my life quite literally 10 years ago I started and every time I moved, I would have to cut short that seerah. But Allah Azza wa has willed that in this community of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, I'm actually coming to the conclusion for the very first time. And Alhamdulillah, I thank Allah Azza wa for what He has bestowed upon us. And I pray that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala accepts this endeavor uh, from me and from all of those who have participated. And Insha'Allah, uh, perhaps towards the end when we finish, I want to also summarize because I've had a lot of questions about my own methodology, about the sources that I've used, and other things. Maybe even today, if we have time. If not today, then the next uh, time I come, inshallah, we'll just summarize a little bit of that just for the sake of uh, information. So today, inshallah ta'ala, we will begin from where we left off in the final uh, seerah, and that is the return of the Prophet wasallam to Medina from the Hajj. Our Prophet did not stay in Mecca after he finished Hajjatul Wada'. Quite literally, the very uh, last day of Hajj, the 13th day of Hajj, he performed the Tawaf al-Wada'. And then in the same evening, he began the journey back to Medina. And so our Prophet returned to Medina in the month of Hajj, Dhul Hijjah, in the 10th year of the Hijrah. And this was his final journey. Once he entered Medina, he would never leave it after this until he passed away. And a few weeks later, so he stayed in Medina, in of course Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, uh, and then in Safar, in the month of Safar, towards the very end of Safar, he decided to send out an expedition to the lands of the Romans, the Byzantine Empire, and in particular Ard al-Sham, and in particular Palestine. So he decided to send a group of Sahaba, including amongst them Abu Bakr and Umar, and many of the senior Sahaba in order to go conquer Palestine. And he made this decision a few weeks before he passed away and he announced to the Sahaba to gather together their arms and he would not go, but he was going to send the other Sahaba. And he chose to lead them Usama ibn Zaid. Usama ibn Zaid. And this is the same Zaid that once upon a time he had adopted and then Islam came and abolished that adoption. This is the same Zaid that we said that the Sahaba said the day that the Prophet passed away. If Zaid had still been alive, no one would have thought of anyone other than Zaid to take over after the Prophet Zaid was married to, who was he married to? Initially and then after after the divorce happened with Zainab, Umm Ayman. Zayd then married Umm Ayman. And who is Umm Ayman? Umm Ayman was one of the very, very, very few people still alive who knew the mother and father of the Prophet She was the servant of Amina. And she had taken care of the Prophet as a baby. And so Umm Ayman is like a mother figure 
Of course, by now we're talking about, we're obviously we're uh, rewinding a bit. Obviously when uh, Zayd marries Umm Ayman, she's not an elderly figure, she's at the prime of her life. So Zayd marries Umm Ayman, but Umm Ayman is the only figure really that still knows Abdullah and Amina and has raised the Prophet and she lives a few years after the death of the Prophet This is Umm Ayman. So Umm Ayman is close to the Prophet and Zayd is close to the Prophet and their child Usama is born in the house of the Prophet and raised in his house. So he was like a child but not obviously a child. And the Prophet loved him so much that Usama had a laqab, a title. And that title was Hibbu Rasulillah, a Mahbubu Rasulillah. That's what the people called him, Hibbu Rasulillah. This was Usama ibn Zayd. So, of course, Zayd, he passed away. When did he die? Who, everybody should know when he passed away. To the very end, I'm going to quiz you. When did he pass away? The battle of Mu'ta was when he became a shaheed. The battle of Mu'ta was when he became a shaheed. And his son Usama is now 18 years old. His son Usama is 17 or 18 years old. And the Prophet assigned Usama to become the leader of this expedition. And in them, in the qawm, in the people amongst them, are the senior Musahab, Abu Bakr and Umar and others. And he chooses Usama to be the leader of the expedition. And rumors began to spread. People began to mumble. Why should he put... Uh, this boy in charge of us and they criticized that he's not a Qurashi and no doubt Islam came to abolish this but our Prophet said certain things shall remain until the day of judgment in my ummah number one amongst them is racism Al-Fakhru Bil-Ansab he said certain things Arba'un min amr al-jahiliyyah four things from jahiliyyah they shall remain in my ummah till the day of judgment and the first thing he said was racism and so racism still remains and no doubt they weren't public about this but murmur spread that he's not a Qurashi his father was a Mawla and a Mawla of course means that he was a freed slave so there is this notion of course not the senior Sahaba but there's talk in the city and quite publicly and this was a legitimate challenge from some of them he's too young he's too young to be the leader He's only 17, 18 years old. And the Prophet ﷺ then called the Sahaba and he, and he criticized them. And he said, if you dislike his leadership, then remember you also criticize the leadership of his father before him. This is not the first time. And he's reminding them of the conquest of, of Zayd, what Zayd has done. And Zayd paved the way for us in the battle of Eventually the battle of Tabuk took place in the same direction. So he's reminding them, you criticized Zayd. Look at the legend that Zayd became. And you weren't happy when I chose Zayd as well. Now you're criticizing his son, Usama ibn uh, Zayd. And by Allah, he is worthy of being a leader. And this man, Usama, is the most beloved of people to me after his father. Meaning after Zayd, I love Usama uh, the most. And... It was indeed a very wise choice for many reasons. Uh, of them is that Usama's father had been killed by the Romans. And so who better to choose than somebody who now, he needs to think about the Byzantine Empire. And he wants to extract his vengeance and revenge. And also, 
and in one version, in fact, he told Usama, go to where your father was killed. Even though Usama was not going to go to Mu'tah, Usama was going to go to Syria. He was going to go beyond Mu'tah. But go to where your father was killed, meaning remind him that these are the people that murdered your uh, father. And so Usama left on the very last day of Shawwal, he left the uh, city. Uh, and when they were one or two days outside the city, a messenger came running to him saying, wait, the Prophet has fallen ill. So just wait until he's feeling better. The Prophet did not send the messenger. The people became concerned. And they said, wait, we don't know what's happening. He's fallen ill. So Usama camped outside of Medina uh, out for uh, a few days. Then he came back to the city. And we'll talk about that. He actually visited uh, the Prophet on the day of his death. He visited the Prophet And eventually after the Prophet's death, then they decided what to do with the army to uh, Usama. Uh, and eventually... This force became the first Muslim army to win against the Roman Empire and it paved the way for the conquest of Syria and especially Palestine. Uh, I'm jumping the gun here, but the symbolism is obvious and there is no doubt every Muslim should believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose the Prophet to pass away right after this decision. Everything is qadr. Everything is qadr. What was the symbolism of telling the Sahaba to go to Palestine and yet he himself dies before they actually go? The symbolism or the profundity is very clear that our Prophet does not, is not wanting to stop Islam at the borders of Arabia. Islam is not just an Arabian phenomenon. Islam is a global phenomenon and he wanted the Sahaba to go forth and especially he wanted them to go to to the holiest of holies after Mecca and Medina and that is Jerusalem and that is why the first conquest in the reign of Abu Bakr will began to take place against the Roman Empire and against Sham uh, and they conquered Sham and as you know Jerusalem on the first day of the Khilaf of Umar and we'll get to that story if we ever uh, get to it but the point being that this opened up the way for all future conquests that the process is laying the foundation that all future conquests, the Sassanid Empire, North Africa, Egypt, Algeria, all the way to Morocco and Spain, he's telling them that go forth and bring Darul Islam and bring the light of Islam to these uh, people. But uh, with regards to this specific expedition, it was halted for the time being and the Prophet ﷺ fell sick. Now, we now talk about the final sickness of the Prophet ﷺ. And before we begin this, uh, let us point out that there were many signs in the Quran and in the Sunnah that this time would come. There were many signs that are easy for us to look back and say, oh, here he said this. But when he said it, it didn't register with anybody. And when the Quran was revealed, nobody read it in that manner. Why? Because it is human nature, my dear brothers and sisters, that we do not think about death. It is human nature that we do not think about our death and especially the death of our loved ones. And the more we love somebody, the less we think about their death. And so how about the Prophet Muhammad How could anybody imagine that he would ever go away? So the thought is not even coming to their heads. Even though when I quote you these ayat and a hadith, you will think it's so obvious. But some of these ayat, when Abu Bakr recited them on the day of the death of the Prophet in one version it is said, Umar asked him, are these verses from the Quran? He can't even imagine. In another version he says, it was as if I had never heard these verses before. Meaning he didn't understand it in that light. What are some of these verses? Of them is Surah Al-Zumur verse 3. 
You are going to die, singular, Rasulullah. And they as well are going to die. As explicit as possible. إِنَّكَ مَيِّتْ وَإِنَّهُمْ مَيِّتُونَ Of them is Surah Ali Imran verse 144. Surah Ali Imran verse 144. وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ Muhammad is nothing but a Rasul. قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُولِ Many are the Rusul that have come before. أَفَإِمْ مَاتَ أَوْ قُتِلْ إِنْ قَلَبْتُمْ عَلَىٰ أَعْقَابِكُمْ When he dies or is killed, will you turn your backs and forget about everything? So once again Allah is preparing them. When he dies or is killed, remember this verse was revealed in Surah Al-Uhud, uh, sorry, in Battle of Uhud, when they thought he had died. And that's why Allah says, when he dies or is killed, they thought he had been killed. The rumor began he had been killed, as you remember. And so here Allah revealed, when he dies or he is killed. So there's a matter of when, not a matter of it's not going to happen. And... Surah Al-Anbiya verse 34, which is also as explicit as humanly possible. That Allah says, وَمَا جَعَلْنَا لِبَشَرٍ مِّن قَبْلِكَ الْخُلْدِ We have not given eternal life to any human being before you. If you are going to die, Ya Rasulullah, singular, do they think they will get a free pass for eternity? And this ayah is so explicit that if anybody were to have been given eternal life, who would it be? The Prophet ﷺ. So Allah is saying, Ya Rasulullah, even you are going to die. If you are not going to live forever, do they think they're going to live forever? So if anybody deserved eternal life in this world, it would have been our Prophet Wasallam. And Allah says, if you're going to die, do they think they will also uh, live? And therefore, clearly the Qur'an is giving these indications. Not only the Qur'an, even in the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, some indications are given. In Ramadan of the 10th year of the Hijrah, in Ramadan of the 10th year, obviously two months before, he left for Hajj. The first, perhaps, premonition began. What was that? Jibreel would come to the Prophet every Ramadan and recite the Quran to him once. But this year, Jibreel came and recited twice. Without telling him the reason, without giving anything away, but the premonition came. Something is different. This caused the Prophet So this clearly shows us that Allah did not tell him that you're going to die at this stage. Allah did not inform, He did not know, but premonition, intuition, Allah is indirectly suggesting without explicitly telling. Another indication that He's about to die is Surah An-Nasr. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتَحِ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا And this is a reference to the conquest of Mecca. That when you, uh, when the big conquest comes, and the help from Allah comes, and you see all of mankind entering into Islam like armies upon armies. What should you do? Start praising Allah and asking forgiveness, meaning your end is about to come. Praise Allah, ask forgiveness. Indeed, Allah forgives. And Umar ibn al-Khattab, when in his Khilafah, he quizzed the Sahaba, what does this surah mean? And none of them understood. And Ibn Abbas said, this was an indication to the Prophet ﷺ that 
his ajal, his time is about to come and he should prepare to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also, he hinted at this to some of his beloved sahaba, some of the people he loved the most, he gave indirect uh, indications. And of them is the famous hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal. When Mu'adh left uh, for Yemen, of the final people that he sent to be the governor, and he loved Mu'adh a very strong love. And Mu'adh was of the most noble of the Sahaba. And our Prophet privately walked with him, him and Mu'adh alone. Nobody else was there. And he actually walked and Mu'adh was on the donkey. He was on the animal and the Prophet is walking. And Mu'adh insisted, he said, no, I want to walk with you like this. That was his love for Mu'adh. And he told Mu'adh, Ya Mu'adh, Wallahi inni la uhibbuk. I love you, O Mu'adh. And he then said to Mu'adh, that, O Mu'adh, perhaps you shall not see me after this. And perhaps when you come back to Medina, you will find my masjid and my qabr. So he's telling Mu'adh in the last year of his life, he sent Mu'adh in the last year of his life, he's telling Mu'adh that in all likelihood that you are not going to see me in this world. And of course Mu'adh began to cry at this point in uh, time. And of the premonitions and of the uh, signs that he is giving to the people is of course the entire Hajjatul Wada'a. Why is it called Hajjatul Wada'a? Because he was Wadda'an Nas. He was saying goodbye to the people. Wadda'a means to say goodbye to. He was saying goodbye to the people. And he was telling the people that It is very likely I will not see you after this year of mine. And he said to the people, follow everything from me right now because I don't know if you will be able to follow from me next year. So he's telling them this might be it. And that is his premonition, but he is not sure. He's not 100% sure, uh, and Allah Azza did not inform him 100% that he's about to pass away, but there is this notion, and he is somewhat certain, so he's giving the indications to his uh, beloved. And sometime in the month of Safar, right before he fell sick, sometime in the end of the month of Safar, he visited the uh, site of Uhud, and he made a special dua for the people who had passed away in Uhud. And he said that, wait for me at the Hawd. I will meet you at the Hawd. He's speaking to them. He says, wait for me. I will meet you at the Hawd. And I will be the one there uh, before you come. I'm going to be the one who's there. And then you will find me at the Hawd. So he is telling them that I will meet you, which means... He's about to go to the next world, the Alamul Barzakh. He's about to uh, go there. And of course, foremost amongst the people uh, at uh, Uhud was his uncle Hamza. And we know the love and the bonds that he had with his uncle Hamza. And it is narrated that perhaps the very last day of Safar, if not the first day of Rabi'ul Awwal, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and he went uh, and he knocked on the uh, door. He had a, a servant by the name of Abu Muwayhiba. And he knocked on his door. And Abu Muhibah came out and he said, Jibreel has commanded me to go to Baqir in the middle of the night. Or late at night. We should say after Isha, not the middle, but late at night. Jibreel has commanded me to go to Baqir. So basically come with me. So they went to Baqir al-Gharqat. And this is at the very end of his life. And this is the last time he visited the graveyard of Medina. And he made a beautiful dua for the people of Baqir. 
And he then, on the way back, he said to Abu Muayhib, and Abu Muayhib only told this later on, he said to Abu Muayhib that, do you know that Allah has given me the choice of the keys to this world and everlasting life, khuld, then Jannah, or to meet Allah right now and be in Jannah. Both end in Jannah. But there's one difference. You can live in this world till the end of days and then be in Jannah. Or you can leave right now and be with Allah in Jannah. So Abu Muayhib said, May my mother and father be given as a ransom for you, Ya Rasulullah. Choose this whole world for all of eternity and then get Jannah. And our Prophet said, No, I have already chosen. No, I have already chosen. He said, No. That's not what I have already chosen. That's not my choice. And so, quite clearly, but again, see, one needs to realize, he is saying these hadith, the Sahaba are not thinking this is going to happen right now. They're just thinking this is some time in the future is going to happen. Still, it's not registering in their heads. And that is why, to the very end, to the very last day, the Sahaba did not actually think he would pass away. Because there's always that, not just that hope for them, they cannot imagine life without the Prophet ﷺ, as we will get to on the day that he passed away, how they were uh, feeling. And this also shows us as well, that uh, our Prophet ﷺ, uh, would regularly go to the graveyards, even before he entered his own graveyard, he visited the graveyard, and he made dua for the dead. And this is of the wisdoms of going to the graveyard. Why did Jibreel tell him to go to Baqi'ah? One of the reasons why we should all go to, to the graveyard is what? It reminds us of our own mortality and death. So even our Prophet Muhammad went to the graveyard before his own death to remind himself of his own death. So that is one of those sunnahs that we should, uh, we should uh, follow. And he returned to the house of Aisha. It was Aisha's night on that night. And the next day it was the day of Maymuna, his, his wife Maymuna. And he went to Maymuna's house. And this is perhaps the second of Rabi' al-Awwal. Uh, it is perhaps the second, maybe the first. We don't know the exact date, but around this time. First or second of Rabi' al-Awwal. And it was in the house of Maymuna that the fever began. It was in the house of Maymuna that the uh, fever began. And the first few days, he attempted to still be fair and equitable and go from each house to house until finally when he became very, very weak, he asked permission from his wives that do you give me permission not to go to each of the houses and just to rest in the house of Aisha. And obviously all of the wives agreed uh, to this. He's trying to be fair to the very end, even though technically our Sharia says he did not have to ask permission. He has a level above any other man in this regard. He does not have to ask permission. But still to be fair to the very end, he asks their permission that I cannot physically go. Do you mind if I spend a few days in the house of Aisha and of course this was to be his uh, final days. Now a quick footnote before I proceed. The incidents of the last 10 days, he was sick for around 10 days, some say 11 or 12. The incidents for the last 10 days are many and they are mentioned in the books of Hadith and the books of Sirah as is typical. We have one problem and that is what? I've said this many times for many incidents. Chronolog chronologically piecing them together. So for today's lecture, I have pieced them together according to one narrative and Allah Azza wa knows best because there are other interpretations and to be honest, it's a very insignificant issue. Maybe this happened on a Tuesday rather than a Wednesday, so what? In the end, it happened. 
So these are small issues, but I just want you to know in case you hear another lecture or read another book, there might be some back and forth in this chronology. What I have constructed is one uh, version of events and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows best about that. But all of these incidents indeed happened. So on one of these days, we don't know exactly when, he simply started staying in the house of Aisha and did not go to any other house. And as the fever increased, and remember we're talking about a time, they did not have any medicine for fever. Fever was one of the worst, even though it is the most common. Our Prophet said, fever is one of the punishments of Jahannam in this world. It is one of the punishments of Jahannam in this world. Is there anything worse than when we are feverish? It's so painful. And for us, we take these painkillers for granted. We just pop them like candy. Realize these painkillers are modern. Before even this century, there was nothing to diminish the pain of a fever. And fever was so painful, people would die from the sheer pain of the fever. Just from the pain of the fever, people would die. There's not a single painkiller at that time. And there's no medicine, it's just you have to bear with it. And indeed, our Prophet bore with it. So as our Prophet fell sick in the house of Aisha, Aisha would regularly recite Ruqya on him. And she would uh, blow on him Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas and she would recite the du'as that the Prophet himself had taught her and she would also have a bucket next to him and sometimes pour water on him. This is one of the techniques they would use to lower the uh, temperature. And at one point in these, it must have been at least a week he's in the house of Aisha, at least a week. At one point in this time, we don't know exactly when, Aisha herself had a severe headache. Aisha herself had a severe headache. So she enters into the bed of the Prophet and she's holding her head and she's saying, Wa wa ra'sa, which is the Arabic way of saying, Oh my head, oh my head. So she has a headache and the Prophet then smiles. No matter what his pain is, no matter how much pain he's feeling, he wants to still joke and tease Aisha. And he smiles and he says, No, O Aisha, rather, Wa ra'sa, how much pain is my head in? In other words, your pain is nothing. My pain is much worse than yours. And then he said, Oh Aisha, what do you lose if you were to die now? Now subhanAllah, he's about to die. But he's making a, a type of joke with her so that she can calm down. She can prepare. Of course, she didn't realize when, why he's joking with her. This is only later on. But he's just making it easier for her, the inevitable. He understands now this is it. Nobody else understands. So he makes this, this friendly reminder to her or joke with her that we're all going to die. So he says, Oh Aisha, what do you lose if you were to die now? And I'm still alive. And I will wash your body. What a great honor. I will put you in the kafan, in the, in the grave. And I will play, pray over you. What better thing could you hope for? So in this state of pain, he's just trying to ease the tension and also gently remind her of what? Of death. Gently remind her, right? And of course, Aisha does not understand at all. And immediately her jealousy kicks in. And of course, she had every right to be jealous when you have the process as a husband. Why would you not be jealous? And she says, I'm sure you're waiting for that, Ya Rasulullah, because then nobody would monitor you going to your other wives. Right? I'm the one that monitors you the most. I'm the one that's the most uh, keeping track. So I'm sure you're expecting that. You would be happy. And of course, she's teasing back. Obviously, she knows the process is not going to be happy. But she's teasing back. And she does not realize that this joke is actually a very serious joke that is meant to 
make her prepared mentally. Uh, but subhanAllah, even to his very end, he's being laughing and joking with his wife Aisha. Around the fifth day of his uh, sickness, so he has six days left, uh, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to live, uh, six or seven days before he passed away, uh, he commanded them to bring buckets of water out. So they brought buckets from a particular well that was known for its cool water. Not all waters are the same. For us, we, we're just used to tap water, whatever. When you have an actual well, each water has its own flavor, its own characteristics. So he asked for a well that was known to be a very cool well, a very beautiful water. So he said, bring me water from that well. So they brought him buckets and buckets. And they poured it on him. They poured it and poured it on him to lower the fever. And then he wrapped a turban tight around his head. Why would he do that? To minimize the pain. Because his head is throbbing. His head is throbbing, sallallahu alayhi wa He wraps a turban tight around his head. And then he is carried between two men, Abbas and Ali. And of course, Abbas and Ali are here and they're helping to the very end. Why? Because they are, without a doubt, the internal al bayt There's no, nobody who ever denies this. Abbas is his uncle. Ali is his son-in-law and cousin. Of course, they're going to do khidmah to the very day that he passes away. So Abbas and Ali carry him. He cannot even walk. And at this stage, even though he's talking, he cannot walk already. So they carry him to the uh, masjid and they put him on the uh, mimbar. They put him on the mimbar. And by this stage, because of his sickness and because everybody has seen his sickness, the people of Medina are getting worried. Already he's been sick three or four days. They have seen this. He's coming out for the salah as of yet. But these are shorter salah. He's not spending time with them. Anybody who's sick, you know when you're sick, how you look and whatnot. He's coming back to his house. So the news spreads. And he has never been sick for his whole life in this manner. Never. He has never had a fever that has caused him to basically not pray the way he used to pray or to not be with his sahaba. So news spreads across the city. And people began to camp inside the masjid. Abu Bakr, Umar, Abdurrahman ibn Auf. Of course, Ali is already living next door because Ali had a house next to the house of Aisha. Ali and Fatima, they have a house. They have two houses, one outside and one inside uh, Medina. And they're living there. So the Sahaba who don't have houses close by, what do they start doing? They start sleeping in the masjid. Just because of what? Because of concern. Because of care. You know, when you're very worried, you cannot function normally, right? If there's something really bothering you, you cannot just sit down and relax. You have to walk around. You have to go to the place of, of, of finding out information. So what happened? By this time, the masjid is jam-packed already. People are already sitting there waiting for any news from the Prophet wasallam. So he, he walks outside with Abbas and Ali carrying him. And... He sits on his uh, mimbar. He cannot even stand on his mimbar anymore. And he gives them some advice. And various books of hadith give various phrases and lines of the things that he said. Of the things that he said is that he said, May Allah's curse be upon the Yahud and the Nasara because they took the graves of their prophets as masjids. And he forbade them from doing so. So now he's thinking, now again the Sahaba don't understand the connection yet. He's already thinking, what's going to happen to my grave? I don't want my grave to become a masjid. 
I don't want my grave to become a place where people do sajda to and prostrate to and, 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 and worship for the grave. So he's telling them Allah's la'na is on the Yahud and the Nasara. Why? Because they took the graves of their prophets as masjids. And he also said at this time that if there is anybody who has any obligation or any right that I have not fulfilled, or if anybody has a debt that I have not paid, then come now and ask me before the day of judgment. And he says in one version, he said in Sahih Bukhari, he said, if I have hit anybody unjustly in my whole life, then here is my back. Come and hit me now before you ask it for me on the day of judgment. And he kept on asking and asking and asking until some versions say some very trivial things, some very trivial things that people asked that, that one of them said that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, uh, you owe me three dinars. So he said, and when is that? How is that? So he says, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I would not have said so, but you're insisting so many times, I felt if I didn't say something, I'd be guilty. So one day there was a beggar passing and you said, who would give him the money on my behalf? I gave him and you didn't pay me back. And wallahi, had it not been that you keep on asking, 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 I wouldn't have said it. So in other words, he's now embarrassed. How many times is the Prophet saying, do I owe, do I owe, do I owe? So this Sahabi felt if I'm quiet, maybe I'm going to be sinful, right? Otherwise, three dinars is nothing, it's like five dollars, ten dollars, very trivial. And thus he had already forgiven it. So the Prophet ordered, give him his three dinars. So it is mentioned that certain trivial things happened uh, that people, uh, they, when they felt so much awkward, they even said this and that. But otherwise, obviously, nothing of major significance. Who has any mazlama, who has any right that the Prophet has not uh, fulfilled? And he also said on the mimbar that. There is a servant from amongst the servants of Allah. Allah has asked him to choose between this world and his Lord. And he has chosen his Lord. Now this is the same thing he said to his servant five days ago. But this time he spoke generically. So we know by now that the choice has been given for sure. And he's chosen his Lord. And because he was speaking in the third person, a servant from the servants of Allah. The Sahaba were happy that, wow, what a lucky man. Allah has asked somebody for a choice, he's chosen Allah, what a lucky man. And only one person in the audience began to sob, hysterically, loudly. And that was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Because Abu Bakr understood, this is nobody other than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And people are not understanding why Abu Bakr is crying. And he looks at Abu Bakr in front of the whole masjid and he says, do not cry, O Abu Bakr, for you are the one who I trust the most in my companionship and in my family. You are the one that I trust the most. And were I able to take a close friend in Arabic, Khalil, and Khalil is the closest friend you can have. Were I able to take a Khalil in this world, my Khalil would have been Abu Bakr. But I cannot take a Khalil because Allah has chosen me to be his Khalil. So I cannot take you as a Khalil. Meaning I am, Allah has made me Khalil because Khalil is Ibrahim and our Prophet ﷺ, two Khalils. Khalilullah is Ibrahim and Khalilullah is Muhammad ﷺ. These are the two Khalils that we know of. And Allah جل, chose the Prophet ﷺ as his Khalil. So he's saying I can't choose you as my Khalil. But O oh Abu Bakr, between us and you is the brotherhood of Islam. 
Then he made an announcement. Let all of the doors of the masjid that go in from the private houses. Now pause here. In those days, they didn't have the luxury of having separate walls between the houses. Where one wall finished, the other house would begin on the other side of the wall. Just like imagine in this masjid of ours, each one of these windows, each one of these doors, imagine another house is behind it. So every one of the Sahaba who had built their house, when the masjid was built, they have houses right next to the masjid, they would have their own personal doors. And it was halal up until that point in time, for those who live next to the masjid to have their personal doors going in. And of course our Prophet had his personal door from the house of, of Aisha. Then on this point he made the decree that let all of these doors be shut, and they were never opened after that. Except for the door of Abu Bakr. He had a temporary abode, not his main abode. He had a temporary abode next to the masjid, except for the door of Abu Bakr, that one should be uh, open. And so Abu Bakr's door, this was an honor that the Prophet gave him, one of many honors that he would be giving him in the next uh, few days. And, the, and this advice clearly has a symbolism, that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala an has been chosen and preferred above all of the Sahaba. Uh, can, we have, uh, can we have some of the brothers move forward because uh, we're getting uh, too many people in the back, so inshallah move forward. So, after all of the doors were closed, now this probably is taking place on a Wednesday or uh, maybe late Wednesday this is taking place. The next day, on Thursday or Friday, now he passes away on a Monday, he passes away on a Monday. On the Thursday or Friday, now pause here, there's a big controversy. It's actually very trivial, but it's a big one in terms of historians. When did this happen? Thursday or Friday? Uh, and according to some reports, this happened on a Thursday. But in my humble opinion, and this is a minority opinion, but I will follow it for this class, it happened on a Friday. What am I talking about? The transfer of the Salah from the Prophet to Abu Bakr. The transferring of the salah. When did it take place? Many scholars said Thursday night. And a minority said Friday night. And I am following the minority here for one simple reason. Friday afternoon, what happens? Khutbah. And if anybody other than the Prophet had given the khutbah, in my humble opinion, this would have been remarked. Somebody would have said something. The fact that nobody mentions anything different to me indicates that he actually gave the khutbah that day. And perhaps even this very talk that is mentioned was the Friday khutbah. Perhaps even this very talk was the Friday khutbah. And this is my theory and Allah knows best. Because it fits the, everything perfectly. That his final khutbah is what he's telling them these things. That Allah has given a choice and a servant has chosen uh, his Lord. This is the final khutbah. This could be... Uh, said, and this is the theory that I am uh, operating upon. And so he led Salat al Maghrib on a Friday, according to this theory. According to the other theory, it will be on a Thursday. On a Friday, he led Salat al Maghrib, and this was to be the final Salah that he led in the masjid publicly. The final Salah that he led of a, of a, of a loud Salah. And he recited, as we know from the hadith of Sahih Bukhari, he recited Surah al Mursalat. So the last Surah that he recited publicly was Surat Al-Mursalat. And after Maghrib Salah, so he's in a fever, he's in a hard fever, he comes back and he lies down on his bed and 
Isha comes and Bilal comes knocking on the door or asking permission, Ya Rasulullah, it's time for Isha. Bilal's custom and habit that he would, before he gave the iqama, the Prophet's door was right there. Literally, if this is the Qibla, his door is over there. Uh, as you can imagine the road of the Prophet, imagine that. His door is on the right-hand side. So he would go and he would say, Ya Rasulullah, it's time for the Iqamah. When he comes out then, Bilal would be giving the Iqamah. So Bilal comes and says, Ya Rasulullah, it's time for uh, Isha. It's time for Isha. And so he stood up to lead them in Salah, but he fainted on his bed, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He lost consciousness. So he ordered some water to be poured on him and he stood up again. And he lost consciousness again. And this was longer than the first time. Then he became conscious and he said, have the people prayed yet? And they said, no, they are waiting for you, Ya Rasulullah. So he tried once again to stand up. And once again, his knees simply cannot take that pressure. And he falls down. According to one report, seven times he's attempting to get up and lead them in Salat al-Isha. And wallahi, brothers and sisters, how many times is the Salah emphasized even in his final days? How many times? It is shameful and pathetic for any one of us to read these stories and not be motivated to pray our prayers on time over and over again to the very end as we shall see and he's telling the sahaba to pray he's trying to pray he's trying to lead them in salah and he cannot do it he physically falls down seven times he falls down then when he realizes he's not going to be able to lead them in salah so then aisha is around him and he says to aisha muru aba bakrin nas go command abu bakr he will lead them in salah and this is the first explicit indication, explicit, that the person, now realize, for 10 years in Medina, nobody has led the salah while the Prophet is in Medina. Think about it. Think about it. Nobody has led the salah. It once happened that the Prophet was outside and Abu Bakr began the salah. He wasn't in the vicinity. And the Prophet returned in the middle of the salah. And Abu Bakr noticed this and so he swapped places with him. But the Prophet did not appoint him. To lead the salah, it just so happened that there was nobody there and they thought the Prophet would not come back in time. This was a few years ago. But never in the 10 years of Medina has the Prophet been in Medina around the masjid and somebody else is leading the salah. So the command to Abu Bakr is a clear indication. When I'm not here, when I'm gone, who will take charge? It is Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Now, Aisha is the one he has told. And Aisha is the daughter of Abu Bakr. And Aisha does not want her father to lead. Why would Aisha not want her father to lead? She gave an excuse, which was not a lie, but it wasn't the real excuse. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, my father is a man, Raqiqul Qalb. He has a soft heart. When he stands in salah, he begins to sob when he reads the Quran. People won't like it. Why don't we find somebody else? And he said to Aisha again, Muru Aba Bakr and Falyusalli bin Nas. And it so happened Abu Bakr was actually not in the immediate vicinity. He must have gone for some hajjah for some reason and he wasn't there. So we, we can stall. She can stall for a while. She brings Hafsa in and says to Hafsa, Why don't you convince him? She wanted Hafsa to get her father in. She did not want Abu Bakr to leave. Now, why? For multiple reasons. Firstly, because she did not want anybody to think that. Abu Bakr astaghfirullah is taking advantage of the situation to push himself forward. And secondly, she was scared in case the Prophet does indeed pass away, that people will associate Abu Bakr's imama and it will remind them of his death. So she has this overprotection of her father. 
This is an overzealousness of protecting her uh, father. So she did not want the Prophet to lead, uh, sorry, Abu Bakr to lead. So she says to Hafsa, why don't you try as well? And so Hafsa tries. And when the Prophet on that sick bed with the high fever, he realizes that his wives are conspiring to bring him out of this, to bring another, uh, another man in. And he says that, go and find Abu Bakr, for Allah will not allow anyone other than Abu Bakr. Allah will not allow anyone other than Abu Bakr. All of you are acting like the Sawahibu Yusuf, the women around Yusuf, meaning what? Go back to the story of Yusuf, that the women conspired to do a plot and plan. And they thought nobody realized their plot and plan. That's what he's saying. That you are conspiring, I know it. I know that you are all together in on this. So that's why he compared them. You are like the Sawahib of Yusuf. And according to one report, when Abu Bakr could not be found immediately, in fact, Umar did start the Salah. But when our Prophet heard Umar's voice, he said, Go and find Abu Bakr, for Allah and his messenger will not allow anybody other than Abu Bakr. And so when he was insistent and adamant, they then uh, found Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr was the one who led the prayer up until the uh, very end. Uh, and of course, this was really the most public announcement. Because we're getting a little bit of theology here. And of course, this is the, the fundamental difference between Sunni and non-Sunni groups. But from our perspective, the Prophet did not want to publicly, explicitly say that the person in charge after me is Abu Bakr. Why not? Because he did not want to establish the custom or the routine of kings and politicians naming their successors. If he had done it, it would have become wajib. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to leave it open to multiple ways, which is exactly what happened. Abu Bakr was chosen in one manner, Umar was chosen in another manner, Uthman was chosen in a third manner, Ali was chosen in a fourth manner. All of these manners are permissible. And if our Prophet had chosen Abu Bakr, then what would he have done? He would have narrowed it down. He didn't want to do that. So what is the alternative? To indicate as much as possible without actually being that explicit. And that's what he did, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That he did not want to name that the person after me, but he gave every other indication uh, possible. And Perhaps, so this is now taking place on a Friday, perhaps on Saturday, perhaps on a Saturday, uh, or maybe some have said on the Sunday before he passed away, one of these two days, uh, he managed to regain a little bit of strength and, and he went outside uh, right before Salat al-Vuhr or while Vuhr was taking place. And this was the final time that the Prophet ﷺ prayed in the jama'ah with, uh, with the Sahaba. And it is said that the Sahaba had already started praying Dhuhr. This is most likely on a Saturday. That they already started praying Dhuhr. And the Prophet uh, walks out while they're in Salah. And there was a commotion in the audience that everybody was making way for the Prophet to come because he has to cut over some sufuf to get there. If you can imagine, he's coming in from there and he's going to come over here. And Abu Bakr hears the commotion and he automatically understands there's only one reason why there could be this commotion. And so he automatically steps back and he looks to his left and he sees the Prophet coming once again on the shoulders of Abbas and Ali. And the Prophet motions to him, Makanak, stay where you are. Stay where you are. But he 
actually does not obey him out of respect for him. This is one of those unique situations you're disobeying in order to show obedience. And he insists that the Prophet ﷺ sit down in the place of the Imam and he stands next to him. Now this is very symbolic. Very symbolic. So the Prophet ﷺ leads. The Prophet ﷺ leads Zuhr seated down. And Abu Bakr is standing. So who are the people seeing? Abu Bakr. But who is the real Imam? The Prophet ﷺ. And this is the most explicit symbolism. That Abu Bakr is the Imam. No, he's not actually. The Prophet is the Imam. But from the eyes of the people, Abu Bakr is the Imam. And this is the most profound symbolism. That Abu Bakr is internally taking the Prophet as an Imam. Nobody else can see him. He's sitting down here. Who else is going to see him? So Abu Bakr is internally taking the Prophet as the Imam. And externally, the people are following Abu Bakr. And for us, this is one of the clearest indications. This is the public announcement. A day and a half before he passes away. That Abu Bakr is going to be the one you will take as a, as a leader. And after Salat al-Dhuhr, he was then lifted onto the uh, mimbar. And this was to be the very last lecture he ever gave in public. This was the very last lecture he ever gave in public. As I said, some scholars say Saturday, others say Sunday. So either a day or a day and a half, a day or two days before he passes away, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And of the things that he uh, said in this lecture, uh, he said that he praised the Ansar. He praised the Ansar. And he said, I command you to take care of the Ansar. I command you to take care of the Ansar, for they have been my best advisors. And they have fulfilled the duties that were due upon them. Now this is also very profound, because when you're commanding the people to take care of the Ansar, this shows you that the other people, i.e. the Quraysh, will be the ones in charge. This is a very subtle way of saying that. Because he's telling one group to take care of the other group, which automatically shows which group has more status right now. It's the group that's being told to do it, right? The closer group is told to take care of thee. So the father tells the son, go take care of the guests, correct? The father commands the son. Now, I mean, of course, I'm not saying that the Ansar are like far away, but I'm trying to explain. Between the Quraysh and the Ansar, between the Muhajirun and the Ansar, without a doubt, the Muhajirun have a higher status. And this is a subtle way of saying that. But he does so, how does he does so? do so? By praising the Ansar. That I command you to take care of the Ansar. They have done their job. They, so they've done their job means that he's proud of them. And now their promise was to protect the Prophet They did it. They're not going to be in charge of the Ummah afterwards. Their promise, they've done it. So he's praising them. And this again indicates your job and your role, you did a perfect job. Now you don't have the next job which is to lead the ummah. And of course this is going to happen after the death of the Prophet and one or two have this notion that maybe I will be. And we're going to get to that when we uh, get to it. So he commands them to be good to the Ansar. And he commands them to purify the Arabian Peninsula from all types of paganism. That he says, get rid of all paganism and all pagans, get them out from Jazirat al-Arab, from the land of Arabia. And so this was of the final fiqh commands that he gave.
of the final fiqh verdicts he gave, there should be no idolatry in this land. The land of Arabia is a special land for us. And so we do not allow idols to be worshipped. We do not allow public uh, uh, displays of idols. This is from our fiqh, that Jaziratul Arab, you cannot have uh, two religions uh, over there. And that is why to this day, especially the Hijaz in Mecca and Medina, you cannot even enter as we know, except on, if, if you are a uh, Muslim. So this is one of the final fiqh commandments that he uh, gave. And he also ordered them that treat the delegations that will come to you with the same hospitality that I have shown to the other delegations. Now all of this he is telling them what to do after he leaves. But still, they're, they're hoping, inshallah, it's just a sickness, he'll get better. And his point is, the future converts, make sure you treat them the same way that I have treated them. The future people that come to this faith, make sure you have the same level of hospitality to them. And of the last things that he said, and this is narrated by a number of Sahaba, that they said the last thing we heard him say is that, you should have good thoughts of Allah when you're about to die. This is a hadith. This is a hadith that none of you should die until you have good thoughts about Allah. So he is telling them something, but there's an internal indication that something is going on in his mind as well. But again, they are hoping, inshallah, this is just a hadith. So this is of the final phrases that he said. And the very last phrase that he said in that khutbah, or in that sermon, or in that mawidah, the very last phrase that he said, As-salah, as-salah, This was the last phrase of the last sermon that he gave on his mimbar. On his mimbar. That he's sitting there, and the last thing he tells them, that make sure you, as-salah here, in Arabic, uh, there's a missing phrase here. What it means is, guard the salah, protect the salah. Re I'm reminding you of the salah. So the last piece of advice that he gives the sahaba before he goes into his house, never to walk out again, is as-salah, as-salah, and fear Allah with regards to the weak of society, the oppressed of society, the slaves and the servants. Fear Allah. They are not... Uh, they will have a, 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 a chance to complain on the Day of Judgment. So fear Allah about the weakest of society. So all weak of society, especially be careful of them, because they might be weak in this dunya, in the next dunya, whoever has done zulm to them, that will be the weak person. So the last phrase that he said, As-salah, as-salah, wattaqullaha fima malakat aymanukum. And most likely this took place Saturday Zuhr. So, this is the final uh, uh, salah that he prays in public with the Sahaba. And on the next morning on Sunday, the day before he passes away, he asks Aisha, how much money do I have? How much money do I have? And so Aisha finds, you know, everybody has pouches, everybody has wallets, whatever. She goes and collects all of them that are in the house. And she pulls out seven, sil seven silver coins, seven dirhams. Now, silver is extremely cheap, even to this day. And a silver coin is very literally like what we would consider maybe two, three dollars, realistically. Absolutely realistically. I mean, to this day, how much is silver? You know, we get a silver dollar. You know, in America, there's a silver dollar, we get that, like that. So, the silver is not gold. He has seven silver coins, very realistically, probably around 20, 25 dollars. It's something that, Wallahi, we spend on, on a meal for ourselves in a day. Just one like this. This is the entire possession he has on the last day of his life. 
This is his bank account, $20. That's the max that he has in his life. And he holds these seven dirhams in his hand and he's putting them in one hand and the other. And he says, what will I say to Allah if I meet Allah with these coins? What will I say to Allah if I meet Allah with these coins? And he gives it back in Aisha's hands and he says, go give it to the poor now. And he falls unconscious again. When he wakes up, he says to Aisha, have you given it to the poor? And it's not on Aisha's priority list. She has to take care of her husband. Her husband is now fainting and sick. It's not on her list. She says, I'll do it, I'll do it. And again, he faints. And again, he wakes up. Have you given it to the poor? And he continues to ask throughout of Sunday until she realizes he's not going to be content until I give it. And so she gets rid of everything in the house of, of money and we can say quite literally without a shred of exaggeration our Prophet passed away without owning a single penny not a single penny was in his possession and Aisha herself uh, Aisha herself says that when the Prophet died there was nothing in his house of gold and silver the only thing that was left was some morsels of barley some morsels of barley what we would call wheat basically that's what they would use for wheat they didn't have wheat of our times and she said in a small cup and I would continue using from this cup for a long period of time until it occurred to me that it's never finishing so I then measured it one day how much is in it and then within a short time it finished. So Allah was just blessing her until she measured it and then it uh, finished. And it is reported that uh, Aisha narrated that when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, he only owned, the only possession he owned was his mule. And he also had an armor, and this armor happened to be with a Yahudi of Medina who had lent them 30 bushels of basically barley, wheat, he had lent them 30, you know, amounts or quantities of barley, and this was the, you know, when you take a loan, you, you give uh, collateral. This was being used as collateral by that Yehudi, when we had that 30 bushels of uh, barley, and he also had a land that he had given to the poor. He had a waqf that he had given to the poor, that was all the possessions of the Prophet ﷺ, and in fact, the night that the Prophet passed away, the very night that Aisha had given all of the money, she ran out of oil for her lamp. And there was nothing in the house to even use for oil. And so she had to borrow an oil, uh, a little bit of oil from their Ansari neighbor lady, a friend of hers. She had to borrow that. Quite literally, the house had nothing of value in it. And this was the death of our Prophet ﷺ. Imagine the man who controlled the entire Arabian Peninsula. The man who was getting now the income from Bahrain and Yemen, from across the Arabian Peninsula, it was coming to him in Medina. And he dies and he doesn't have a single penny to his name. And on the next day, which is the Monday, the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal, at Fajr time, he was too weak to lead them in Salah. And uh, he's still on the bed of Aisha. And Abu Bakr is leading them in Salah. And our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam asked to sit up in his bed. So he sits up in his bed being held and he lifts the curtain because his house has a curtain that separates him from the masjid. He lifts up the uh, curtain and the Sahaba have not seen him for two days. And when they saw his face, 
Anas ibn Malik said, we were about to break our salah in happiness. And the commotion begins in the masjid. And Abu Bakr is of course in the front. Abu Bakr assumes he's coming. So Abu Bakr steps back and turns and looks. But of course the Prophet is inside his house. And he is not coming. And he motions to Abu Bakr, stay where you are. He's not uh, coming. And the last time, Anas says, the last time we saw the, the face of the Prophet was when he had lifted the curtain. This is the Fajr of Monday of the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, in the 11th year of the Hijrah, Salat al-Fajr, he lifts the curtain and he sees his Ummah praying Fajr Salah and his face was beaming with joy. That smile was the last memory that the Sahaba had of our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and what a fitting end because again the issue of Salah comes. Again, our Prophet goes happy why, does he, why is he happy? Because he sees his ummah praying Fajr in the masjid. He sees his ummah all lined up in rows, all of them praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what is making him happy. And wallahi, again, over and over again, how can we listen to these uh, incidents and a hadith and not be moved to pray? How can we possibly give up our salah when we know the emphasis that our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam placed on it? And in the early morning, the fever of the Prophet ﷺ increased and he began to lose, go in and out of consciousness again and again. And Fatima, his daughter, came to visit him. And the Prophet ﷺ had a very strong relationship with Fatima. Every one of us who has a daughter especially, we know that special bond that fathers have with their daughters. But especially our Prophet ﷺ, the, the bonds that he had with Fatima are truly just amazing. The amount of love, the amount of respect, the books of Hadith narrate that every time Fatima would come, he would stand up to kiss her and he would put her in the seat he was sitting in inside of his house. That Fatima was the last of his family to be alive. Everyone had passed away by this point in time. His mother, his father, his uncle, his grandfather, every one of his children have passed away. Wallahi, all of this were glossing over. But imagine who this man is, that Allah Azza wa Jal is testing him with the most painful of tests. How painful is it to lose one child? Our Prophet lost all of them. And Fatima is the final one remaining of his children. Everybody else has passed away. And she sees, Fatima sees her father in that pain. And she begins to cry. And she says, how painful is the suffering of my father. Oh my father, how painful is your suffering. And the Prophet Sallallahu says to Fatima, that oh Fatima, your father will not suffer after today. Your father will not suffer after today. This is it, there's no more suffering after today. And he called Fatima close to her. And he spoke to her something privately and secretly. And she began to cry. She began to cry. And to console her, he then called her again and he whispered something in her ear and she smiled and she laughed. She smiled and she laughed. And it is narrated that when she wanted to go out, Aisha said, tell me, what did he tell you? And Fatima said, no, I cannot spill the secret of the Prophet wasallam. A few months later, when the Prophet had passed away, Aisha says, now tell me. And she says, now I can tell you. Now it's okay to tell you. When I went to the Prophet to to uh, visit him, he whispered to me that Jibreel had come to him 
that year twice for Ramadan and every year he would come once and he says there is no other explanation except that my time has come so now he's telling Fatima this is it there is no other explanation except that my time has come and so I began to cry because my, obviously the process was about to pass away. And so he then whispered to me, he called me again, and he whispered to me that I will be the first of his family to meet him. I'll be the first person to die of his family, to meet him. And of course this is so true because she passed away less than a year, six months after the death of the Prophet Fatima passed away. You shall be the first of my family to meet me, and that you, uh, you shall be the leader of the women of uh, Jannah. And so she smiled out of joy and happiness. Imagine, my dear brothers and sisters, being told you're going to die, and being so happy, you are laughing out of happiness. Why? How? Because Fatima didn't care about life, she cared about Rasulullah, she cared about her father. She did not want to live, she wanted to be with her father. And so when she heard she's going to be without him, she begins to bawl in tears. Then the Prophet says, don't worry, you're going to die. And she laughs. She laughs because she doesn't want to live without our Prophet ﷺ. What type of love is this? That you don't want life. You want Rasulullah And the Prophet ﷺ, his fever increased, his pain increased. And they had put a bucket or a jar of water next to him. And he would put his hand into the bucket and he would wipe his forehead. And it is said that the fever was so hot that Al-Abbas and others, they said, how is the process of bearing this pain? How can he feel this, this fever and, and still be alive? And one of them remarked that the fever of the Prophet is like the fever of 10 of us. The fever of the process was like the fever of 10 of us. And during this time, the final day, and our Prophet is wiping the sweat and he's putting water on his forehead. And he says, Verily, death has its pangs. Even our Prophet felt the pangs of death. Do you think me and you will not feel those pangs? Even our Prophet felt the pangs of death. And he kept on saying, La ilaha illallah, ala inna al-mawti sakarat, la ilaha illallah. And he's making dua to Allah, Allahumma a'inni ala sakarat al-mawt. Oh Allah, help me to overcome the pangs of death. And so these were of the last phrases. He's saying the kalima. And he's making dua to Allah to help him and ease him along this trans transition. And eventually the pain becomes so severe that he cannot speak anymore. And this is now Monday morning. He cannot even speak anymore. And his fever is so hot and his pain is so severe that he's going in and out of consciousness. And it is at that point in time that Usama from outside the city comes back in because he doesn't want to disobey the process. And the process told him to go. So what is he going to do now? But now when the situation is so bad, he actually comes back to visit inside the city to visit the Prophet So Usama was of the very last people who visited him. And our Prophet was so sick he could not say anything. And all he could do was point weakly up and to Usama. Point weakly up and to Usama. And the point being that Allah has blessed you or Allah will bless you or I'm making dua for you. So this is his indication that Usama will be successful. I'm making dua for you. In other words, he wants Usama to go. 
He wants Usama to go, and this will come back in the time of Abu Bakr, the first decision they had to make. What do we do with Usama? And Abu Bakr says, how can I tell him to come back when the Prophet told him to go? So this is that issue going on here. That he's basically saying, go and Allah is with you. He's making dua with his finger. With his finger, he's making dua for uh, Usama. And when the fever becomes even uh, more difficult, Aisha does not know what to do. And so she sits cross-legged and she picks the Prophet up from his pillow and she puts the Prophet on her own shoulder and on her own bosom. Because this is what you do with those whom you love. When we have a loved one who is sick, what do we do? We cradle them, we hold them. Because that physical, that physical touch, it is what calms us down and it calms, and it calms the person down as well. And so Aisha is holding on to the Prophet not knowing what else to do. And she's holding on to him. And this is when her brother, Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr, her younger brother, he comes in as well to visit. And Abdurrahman had a miswak that he was using to, uh, to brush his teeth with. And the Prophet weakly looks at the miswak. And of course, this is Aisha. He know, she knows the Prophet like nobody else. And she says, are you saying you want the miswak? Do you want the miswak? And our Prophet motions. He cannot even speak at this time. He motions. Yes, I want the miswak. So, she gets it from Abdurrahman and she turns it around and she loosens the other side. She bites on it and she loosens it and she hands it to the Prophet He's following the sunnah to the very end and he wants to freshen his mouth before meeting Jibreel, before going up. He wants to be on his best appearance. He wants to even have a, 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 a good appearance and a good smell to the very end, our Prophet So she gave him the uh, miswak. And Aisha says, he held, he held on to it with a vigor that shocked me. That where is this energy coming from? And he did miswak as if I have never seen him do it before. Meaning the vigor and the enthusiasm towards the very end of his life. And then she hands it back to Abdurrahman. And slowly but surely then the fever increased and he's going in and out of consciousness. And it was at that point in time when our Prophet raised his eyes up and he's moving his lips very softly saying something. And Aisha leans down in to listen what is the Prophet saying. And she says uh, that I heard the Prophet say that with the Nabiyeen and the Siddiqeen and the Shuhada and the Salihin. I want to be with the Nabiyeen and the Siddiqeen and the Shuhada and the Salihin. Allahumma firli warhamni wa alhiqni bil rafiq al-a'la. Allahumma firli warhamni wa alhiqni bil rafiq al-a'la. Allahumma firli warhamni wa alhiqni bil rafiq al-a'la. Three times he says, Oh Allah, forgive me. Oh Allah, have mercy on me. Oh Allah, allow me to be with the rafiq al-a'la. And then Aisha says, the last thing that came from his mouth is, Ar-Rafiq al-A'la. And that was when our Prophet ﷺ left this world. What does Ar-Rafiq al-A'la mean? Some of the scholars have said, Ar-Rafiq al-A'la means the company of the Nabiyeen and the highest. But there is another opinion that I seem to find more more plausible or more, and there are both opinions that are valid by the way, Ar-Rafiq al-A'la is none other than Allah Azza wa Jal Himself. Ar-Rafiq al-A'la is none other than Allah Himself. And He is saying, I want to be in the company of al-A'la. And al-A'la is one of the names of Allah. 
I want to be with you, O oh Allah. Now both meanings are overlapping because being with the Nabin and Siddiqeen, you are over there. But here, Allah knows best, the reference is, I want to be with you, O oh Allah. And Aisha says, at that time, I remember the hadith of the Prophet She's literally cradling our Prophet in her hands. And she says, at that time, I remembered that the Prophet had once told me in our marriage that never does the angel of death come to a Prophet except that he asks the Prophet, can I take your soul or not? There's a question. And the Prophet has to agree. Then his soul is taken. So when I heard Ar-Rafiq Al-A'la, I knew that he had chosen Allah over us. And that's when it hit her that indeed the Prophet ﷺ was gone. And he passed away slightly after the uh, the the dhuhr salah on a Monday on the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal in the 11th year of the Hijrah. And Fatima was right next door and she comes rushing in. And she says, Ya abatah, ajaba, rab, uh, ajaba rabban da'ah, ya abatah min jannatil firdawsi ma'wah, ya abatah ila Jibreel nan'ah. Oh my father, ya abatah, you have Call, you have answered the call of your Lord. Oh my father, you are going to end, uh, end up in Jannatul Firdaus. Oh my father, who can we uh, give the news of your death? Who can we get consolation from other than Jibreel? We give the news of your death to Jibreel himself. And Aisha would say that of the greatest blessings that Allah gave me was that the Prophet died in my house on my day between my neck and my chest, with my saliva in his mouth, because remember of the miswak, she had, she had uh, softened it, and then she had given it in the mouth of the Prophet And the news spread across the city, and the people did not know what to do. The books of Sirah mentioned that the Sahaba, I mean we would say in English like headless chickens, the Sahaba were completely, just some of them, they sat down, others were in a daze, others did not know what to do. And in that chaos, and wallahi brothers and sisters, when we lose a loved one, we go into shock. Imagine the Sahaba are losing the one person, they cannot imagine life without him. And it is in that daze that Umar, was the senior most person in the masjid. Why? Because when the Prophet lifted the curtain and they saw him smile, everybody felt he's feeling better. And Abu Bakr had not gone to his own wife and children for a week. He's camping in the masjid. He has not gone home for a week. So when he sees the smile, he tells Aisha, I'm going home. He hasn't gone for a week. I'm going home thinking the situation is better. And it so happened that Abu Bakr therefore was not next to the masjid. Abu Bakr was further away in the city in his home and the senior most sahabi in the masjid was none other than Umar ibn al-Khattab. And the rumors began to spread that the Prophet has passed away and Umar ibn al-Khattab then could not think straight. Out of love, he lost his sense of, of what is going on. And it is said that he started screaming in the masjid that these are the munafiqoon that are spreading these lies. Whoever says the Prophet has, 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 has passed away, I shall chop his neck off. I am going to chop his neck off. I don't want to hear anybody tell me that the Prophet has died. In your emotional shock, you reject the news. It's not possible. He's not going to die. Musa went to Allah for 40 days. This is our Prophet as well going to Allah. He's going to come back. Don't worry. He's going to come back. And he said, anybody who says otherwise has my sword to deal with. Everybody's terrified. Umar is now screaming in the masjid. They're confused what to do. Abu Bakr hears the news. He rides his horse, gallops, comes back. 
to the masjid and he doesn't even enter the masjid. He goes straight to his daughter's house because that's, he wants to see and this shows us the intelligence of Abu Bakr, the wisdom of Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr rushes back to his daughter's house and there he finds the body of our Prophet covered up completely and he lifts the cover from the face of the Prophet and he begins to cry and he kisses the Prophet on the forehead and he said how I would give my mother and father for you Ya Rasul I wish I could get everything to get you back how I could give my mother and father for you Fidaka Abi wa Ummi I'll give anything Ya Rasulullah Fidaka Abi wa Ummi and then he says Allah has spoken the truth you shall taste death but once and this is your death Ya Rasulullah how beautiful are you in life and in death, O Messenger of Allah? How beautiful are you in life and in death, O Messenger of Allah? And he hears the commotion in the masjid. So he exits from the house of Aisha. And the Sahaba are all sitting there confused, dazed. And Umar is the one walking around. Almost as if he's brandishing his sword. He doesn't actually have his sword. It's as if he's brandishing his sword. Nobody should say anything. He doesn't want to hear it that the Prophet is dead. And that is when Abu Bakr says, Oh Umar, sit down. The one person who has the audacity to tell Umar, the courage to tell Umar, sit down. But even then, Umar does not sit down. He just stares at Abu Bakr, not registering. This is, this is shock, not registering. Oh Umar, sit down. And he does not sit down. So when he doesn't sit down, Abu Bakr rises the mimbar and he does not rise to the top. Subhanallah. Can you see even from now? His love is beyond bounds. Nobody ever stood on the top of the mimbar of the Prophet ever again. Nobody. From the day he passed away up until that mimbar uh, finished its use, they all gave the khutbah at the bottom step. They never even had the, 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 the audacity to climb to the top. Even now, when the Prophet has just passed away, Abu Bakr is conscious, I cannot stand in his place. I cannot go to the top. So he stands on the lower level and he praises Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says that ever famous line that wallahi shows us the knowledge and the wisdom of Abu Bakr over all of the other sahaba. And he says that verily whoever used to worship Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam then let him know that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam has died and whoever used to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fa inna Allah ta'ala hayyun la yamut Allah is al hayy who never dies and then he recited the verse of Ali Imran wama Muhammadun illa rasul qad khalat min qablihi ar-rusul afa in mata aw qutil inqalabtum ala aqabikum when he dies or is killed are you going to turn back? Are you going to leave Islam now that he's dead? And this is when Umar ibn al-Khattab, he says, he collapsed to the floor. This is when it hits him. This man Umar, the giant, the mountain Umar, Umar whom everybody was terrified of. Umar, the one who when he wanted to do hijrah from Mecca, what did he do? When everybody was slinking away at night, scared of the Quraysh, Umar marches to the Kaaba and says, I am making hijrah to Medina. Anybody who wants his mother to cry for him, meet me outside the valley right now. And in front of all of their eyes, he marches out. This is Umar, this mountain of a man. When it finally strikes him that the process is gone, he collapses straight to the floor. Complete, he cannot, he cannot even stand on his own feet. 
And he says, it was as if I heard the verse for the very first time. And so the news began to spread that indeed that is the, uh, that is the case that our Prophet ﷺ has passed away. And so many... So many beautiful poems were written. I'm going to come back to exactly what happened. So many beautiful poems were written. Uh, these are called uh, Ratha. And Ratha is a genre of poetry that deals with talking about those who have gone on and praising them. And so much has been narrated by Ibn Hisham. And I really had to quote for you just one beautiful poem from uh, none, other, none other than Hassan ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu, the poet of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the greatest poet of early Islam. He has a, a number of poems at the death of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this is one of them that's extremely uh, beautiful. And unfortunately, it's uh, obviously not been translated professionally. So I'll just translate it in my own uh, words. He says, مَا بَالُ عَيْنِكَ لَا تَنَامُ كَأَنَّمَا كُحِلَتْ مَآقِيهَا كَكُحْلِ الْأَرْمَدِي Why is it that my eyes cannot go to sleep? My eyes cannot go to sleep. It is as if the places of crying, the, the rivers of crying, have become permanent as dark as, as uh, the kuhl that you apply. So he is saying that my tears have come so much that they've formed permanent channels on my, on my uh, cheeks. جَزَعًا عَلَى الْمَهْدِيِّ That this is because of my loss, my sadness at the one who has gone on, the Mahdi, the one who was the rightly guided one. Oh, the best human being who has ever walked on the face of this earth. How I would give my own face to save yours. How I wish I was buried in Baqi' before they buried you. How I wish I wasn't here to hear this news. How I wish I wasn't here to hear this news. My mother and father be given for you. Whose death did I see? Whose death did I see on that Monday? None other than the Nabi who is rightly guided. As soon as he passed away, for the rest of that time, I stayed after his death, confused, grief-stricken. Woe to me how I wish I was never born. Woe to me how I wish I was never born to suffer this pain. أَأُقِيمُ بَعْدَكَ بِالْمَدِينَةِ بَيْنَهُمُ يَا لَيْتَنِي صُبِّحْتُ سَمَّ الْأَسْوَدِي Am I supposed to live in Medina when you're not here? How can I live in Medina when you're not here? Oh, woe to me! Why, doesn't, why didn't somebody just give me poison so I don't have to live this day? Yani he's now talking so many times, I can't bear this. Do you expect me to live in Medina and you are not here? Why am I still alive? Why aren't I in Baqi al-Gharqad? أو حل أمر الله فينا عاجلا في روحة من يومنا أو في غد فتقوم ساعتنا فنلقى طيبا محضا ضرائبه كريم المحتدي Or why doesn't Allah's end come meaning يوم القيامة Why can't we just have يوم القيامة today or tomorrow so that the ساعه comes immediately so that I can finally meet the one whose characteristic was nothing other than generosity I can't wait for this long Oh Allah let the day of judgment come 
so that I can meet the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ya bikra aminat al-mubaraki bikruha walattahu muhsanatan bisa'dil as'udi. O oh, beautiful child of Amina, O oh, son of Amina, of course, Amina, the mother of the Prophet the one that you gave birth to, the one that was the best of all, the one that was the purest of the pure. Nuran kulliha man yahtadi. The Prophet was a light for this whole world. Whoever took that light would indeed be rightly guided and blessed. Ya Rabb. فَجْمَعْنَا مَعًا وَنَبِيَّنَا فِي جَنَّاتٍ تُثْنِي عُيُونَ الْحُسَّدِ Oh Allah, combine me with the Prophet in jannat that are so beautiful that even the eyes of the jealous people will be averted away. فِي جَنَّةِ الْفِرْدَوْسِ فَاكْتُبْهَا لَنَا in Reunite me with the Prophet in Jannatul Firdaus. Ya Dal Jalali, Wadal Ula, Wasu'dadi. Oh Allah, the Majestic, the Mighty. Wallahi. أسمع ما بقيت بهالك إلا بكيت على النبي محمدي. I swear by Allah, as long as I live, I shall not cry for any person who has died, except for the one who died, except for the crying that I have done for a Nabi al-Muhammadi. Nobody's death is of concern to me now. Now that the Prophet is gone, there's no need for me to cry anymore. يا ويح أنصار النبي ورحطه بعد المغيب في سواء الملحدي. Woe to us! The Ansar of the Prophet and his companions. Woe to us after he has been buried in the grave. How are we going to live? The whole land has become tight for the Ansar. Their faces have become darkened like the Ithmid, which is the Kuhl that is applied. And then he concludes. We were the ones who gave birth to him, and yet we ended up having his qabr. What does it mean, we were the ones who gave birth to him? Because the great-great-grandmother of the Prophet was from Yathrib, remember? Abdul Muttalib's mother, remember? The great-great-grandmother of the Prophet was from uh, Yathrib. So he's saying, we were the ones who gave birth to him, and yet his qabr ends up being amongst us. And the blessings that he showed us, nobody can deny. Wallahu akramana bihi wahada bihi ansarahu fi kulli sa'atin mashhadi. Allah blessed us with him and guided us through him at every point in time. Sallal ilahu wa man yahuffa bi'arshihi wa tayyibuna alla al-mubaraki ahmadi. May Allah have salat and salam upon him and the angels around his throne upon the Mubarak, the one who is Ahmad. And there are many other poems as well, but Hassan ibn Thabit, I think, was a very beautiful one. Uh, and of course, as well, Abu Bakr gave poetry, and uh, other Sahaba as well gave their poems. Now, we have to also quickly talk about what exactly happened uh, uh, with regards to the funeral rites of the Prophet wasallam. that the next day, they gathered together asking, how are we going to wash the Prophet This is taking place on a Tuesday. So on Tuesday, they gather together. Who is they? The people that are going to wash the body. Who's going to wash the body? The immediate family. So the immediate family is Al-Abbas and his two sons, Al-Fadl and Qutham. Uh, Abdullah, by the way, is too young. Abdullah ibn Abbas is too young at this time. Uh, and Al-Fadl and Qutham are older. So Abbas, Al-Fadl and Qutham and Ali ibn Abi Talib and some say as well, Safina, the freed slave of the Prophet, the household servant who was freed by the Prophet. The Prophet did not have any slaves. He freed all of them as you know. But, but, but they remained on because they loved him so much. 
He freed all of them, but they remained on. So one of them was Safina, who was there to this time. So they say, these were the people that gathered and they began to talk. How are we going to do ghusl? Because when you do ghusl, what must you do? Take the clothes off. How are we going to do this? And they're wondering. And it is said, as they're wondering, the books of hadith mention, all of them fell asleep. And they heard a voice, but they couldn't see who it was. That said, wash him with his clothes on. And they awoke and they all remembered the voice. It was Angel Jibri, wash him with his clothes on. And so they washed him with his clothes on. Because that is befitting of our Prophet wasallam, And he was shrouded in three white garments from the land of Suhul, which is one of the uh, cities of Yemen that was well known for good garments. So they had three white garments from Suhul and they shrouded him in those and they did not put any qamis or any turban. They had nothing other than the three uh, shrouds. And then the question came, where should we bury the Prophet wasallam? And a number of them had different suggestions. Some said baqi' some said under the mimbar. Uh, some said that where he used to pray in the masjid until finally Abu Bakr uh, said no. I remember hearing from the Prophet one time, I remember hearing that he told me that Allah never takes the soul of a Prophet except at the place where he wants to be buried, where Allah wants him to be buried. So all the Prophets were buried where they died. So when they heard this hadith, end of story, no more discussion. So he was buried on under his bed, basically. His, of course, he didn't have a bed. He had a small mattress type of thing that was picked up. And the grave was dug right there. And he was buried inside that grave. And before the burial, obviously, people prayed over him. And because there was no Khalifa, and we're not going to talk about that issue today, about how Abu Bakr was chosen, because there was no uh, person in charge who could lead the Salah, nobody. And so they all prayed individually. The entire city of Medina and the surrounding tribes, tens of thousands of people walked in, flooded Medina. And all of Tuesday and all of Wednesday, two full days, they kept on coming in one by one. And each group coming in, the men came and the women came and the children came and every group came and they prayed their salah individually in the room of Aisha. They didn't have any jama'ah for the Prophet wasallam, and he was then buried on a Wednesday evening. On the evening of Wednesday, he passed away after Dhuhr on Monday and he was buried on the evening of Wednesday in the very spot that he had passed away in, in the house of Aisha. And when Fatima entered the room again and she saw the grave where the bed used to be and Anas ibn Malik was there and she was, Anas was the servant of the process and the volunteer servant, remember? And she said to Anas that, how could your souls have allowed you to throw sand upon the Prophet How could you have done this? Now of course, she's a daughter, she's being a little bit harsh and she has every right to be harsh, but how could you have done this to throw sand onto the body of the Prophet And it was none other than Anas ibn Malik who said many years later that the day that the Prophet entered Medina was the brightest day of our lives and the day that he was buried was the darkest day of our lives. The day he was buried was the darkest day of our lives. And in one hadith or one narration of Anas ibn Malik, as reported by Al-Bayhaq in his Dala'il, he said, 
after we buried the Prophet ﷺ, Medina became dark for us. It was as if we could not see each other. And if one of us were to extend his hand, we could not see it. Now this is not a physical darkness. This is a darkness of depression. It's a darkness of complete shock. He's saying, if I were to extend my hand, I could not see it. And by the time we finished burying, burying him, we could not recognize our own selves. In other words, what he's trying to say is, we felt so empty, we didn't know who we were. We felt so empty, we did not know who we were. And one of these days that he was sick, and with these hadith I want to conclude, on one of these days that he was sick, it is reported, as Aisha herself narrated, that our Prophet ﷺ said to the Ummah, so this is one of the final hadith that he is saying, and this hadith is in Ibn Majah, and it is an authentic hadith, and it's a very interesting hadith. It's one of the final hadith that he said. This hadith says, O people, whoever amongst my ummah suffers a calamity, let him take consolation for that calamity, your calamity that you've had, from the calamity, from the musibah that befell him because of me. For there is no musibah that anybody shall experience that is greater then the musibah he shall experience because of me. <clears throat> what does this cryptic hadith mean? It means the biggest calamity that ever afflicted the ummah was the death of the Prophet ﷺ. This is the biggest disaster. Think about it. You have a Nabi in your ranks, you have a Rasul in your ranks, and all of a sudden he's gone. How will you know what to do? Who will be in charge? Who will tell you halal and haram? Who will guide the way? Who will you turn to for comfort? Who, who, who? Nobody. There is no calamity greater than the calamity of losing the Prophet ﷺ. And that is what he is saying. That any time something happens in one of your lives, think about the death of the Prophet ﷺ and the fact that Allah protected the ummah. Still the ummah went on. Take consolation from the death of the Prophet ﷺ that your calamity is nothing compared to the calamity of the Ummah losing the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. No musibah compares with the musibah of losing the Prophet ﷺ. The final hadith, my dear brothers and sisters, as we wind down these 101 lectures and episodes of the seerah, the final hadith that I want to conclude with is a hadith that is optimistic for us and also scary. It is optimistic if we act upon it, and it is scary that if we do not act upon it. The final hadith that I conclude with is one of my favorite hadith, and it is a hadith that I have always reminded myself of so many times when I'm doing this research and I am doing this this uh, seerah of the Prophet wasallam. that our Prophet wasallam said that, وَدِدْتُ لَوْ إِخْوَانِي how I wish that I could meet my ikhwan, my brethren. How I wish I could see them. So the Sahaba were shocked. They said, Ya Rasulullah, are we not your brethren? Are we not your ikhwan? And he said, La antum ashabi. No, you are my ashab. You're not my ikhwan. You are my companions. You're not my brethren. My brethren, my ikhwan, will be those who come after you. And they have never seen me. And they still 
believe in me. Without ever having seen me, they still believe in me. And one of them would wish to give up all of his wealth and all of his family and children if he could just see me once. So our Prophet is saying, I want to see that group of people. That's the group I want to see. The group that they've never seen me, they've never met me, they've still believed in me. And they love me so much that they would give up their wealth and their families just to see me once. That's the group I want to see. He was eager to meet. Can I even dare say us? Can I say us? Because would we give up our wealth and our family? Would we change our lifestyles for the Prophet Do we really love him that much? For one ru'ya, for one time to see him. Really would we do that? Ask yourselves. Don't just a theoretical think about it. Would you really love the Prophet that much? That group, he is saying, that's the group I want to see. Those are my ikhwan. They love me without ever having seen me. Ya Rasulallah, we love you even though we have never seen you. Ya Rasulallah, you are our qudwa, you are our imam. You are our... Savior that Allah Azza wa Jal has sent. Without you, we are nothing, Ya Rasulullah. Without you, you are nothing, we are nothing. Fidaka Abi wa Ummi. May my mother and father be given in ransom for you. Our dua and our goal, our hope. Wallahi, ya, my brothers and sisters in Islam, the Prophet indeed has gone. We weren't given that honor. We weren't deserving of that honor. That was the Sahaba. Allah chose them. But there's still some hope for us. There's a glimmer of hope. What is that hope? That hope is if we really and truly love Him. A genuine love. He might not be with us, but what is with us? His sunnah is with us. His sunnah is with us. His seerah is with us. His actions are with us. We read them, we study them. If we truly love him, let us follow that sunnah. Let us embody who he was. Let us demonstrate that his rahmah lil alameen. And if we do so, then perhaps our Prophet will be excited to see us as well. Perhaps we will be raised to the level of his ikhwan. If we truly have that desire to see him. Here we come to this conclusion after five years of this meager research. After 101 episodes that we have done, we have talked about nothing other than this one man. We've talked about nothing other than the blessings of this human being, the greatest human to ever walk the face of this earth. This is a man that Allah chose from the entire creation and he blessed me and you for making us of his ummah. We thank Allah we are from the ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and we ask Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to allow us to see him on the day of judgment, to seek protection from him on the day of judgment. We want to go to him physically. We want the Prophet Sallallahu to invite us on the day of judgment. Oh Allah, if you know that we love your messenger, then allow us to be of those who drink from his fountain on that day, whom the Prophet ﷺ sees and recognizes, whom the Prophet ﷺ loves and wants to be with. Oh Allah, make us from his ummah. Oh Allah, allow us to be with him physically on that day. Oh Allah, allow us to be amongst those whom the Prophet ﷺ feeds with his own blessed hand from the hawd, from the kawthar on that day. Oh Allah, make us of those whom the Prophet ﷺ makes shafa'ah for. Oh Allah, Make us from his ummah that he makes shafa'ah for. Oh Allah, make us from his ummah that he makes shafa'ah for. Oh Allah, grant us the genuine love of the Prophet so that we can be with those whom we love.
Oh Allah, we ask that any shortcomings that we have, we ask that any evil that we have, we ask that any sins that we have, that they be drowned in our love for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Oh Allah, because of our love for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, forgive us. Oh Allah, make us of those who follow his sunnah, who practice his sunnah, who show the reality of his sunnah in this life. Oh Allah, we ask you through the sunnah, of, through the love of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that we have, we ask you to raise Raise us to be genuinely from his ummah. Oh Allah, make us amongst those who are with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Jannatul Firdaus Al-A'la. My dear brothers and sisters, we might have come to the conclusion of our series of the seerah, but indeed the seerah lives on. The sunnah lives on. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's example lives on. We might come to the end of our lectures, but our study never finishes. Our study never finishes. One series of lectures might finish, but we keep on going back, we keep on studying, we keep on benefiting, because the more we study the Prophet ﷺ, the more our Iman rises. My dear brothers and sisters, as I come to this uh, conclusion of, uh, the, uh, of this series, and on a personal note that SubhanAllah, I am very humbled and thankful to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala that He has allowed me to do this, this job of doing so many uh, lectures and wallahi this is nothing compared to what our Prophet deserves but I hope and I genuinely pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts it of me Rabbana taqabbal minna innaka anta samiul alim wa tub alayna innaka anta tawabur rahim if there's any good that has come out of this entire series then know that this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanting to show the honor and the izzah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that Allah has blessed this completely if there's any wrong, any mistake, and there is no doubt that mistakes have been done. The amount of research, I have over 170 hours of Sira material online, and I'm one human being. There is no doubt that there will be mistakes, whether it's a slip of the tongue, whether a wrong name, or a wrong year, or maybe even another mistake, or I use a weak source. There is no doubt that there must be some mistakes, because perfection is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if there's any mistake that has taken place, I ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives that mistake and it was completely from me and from the whisperings of shaitan. And for me brothers and sisters, and I say this with all humility, that Allah knows the amount of effort I have put in and it is my goal and my desire and I ask Allah to bless it in this manner that this series becomes the most comprehensive and the most detailed analysis of the seerah in the English language for many generations to come. This is my goal, it is my sincere desire and I pray that Allah accepts it because it is something that I feel, the seerah is something that I feel if anybody hears it, Muslim or non-Muslim, and especially in this era of non-Muslims making fun of our process and, and, and doing what not, if they listen to his seerah and they see who this man really was, and that was one of my desires to defend the honor of the Prophet that nobody can possibly hate this man if he knows who he truly is. So I pray and I hope that anything that I have done, you can also help in doing this by whatever, by spreading it, by making dua that Allah Azza wa blesses it and any mistakes that have happened are from myself and from shaitan and Allah and his messenger are free from this. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept this humble and noble, uh, uh, may Allah Azza wa accept this humble effort and make it noble and make it sincerely for his cause. وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على عبد محمد وآله وصحبه أجمعين. Before we conclude, so inshallah after we pray, 
uh, there's some uh, refreshments and, and whatnot afterwards because this is the first time that I have finished uh, the seerah. And for me, this is a very momentous occasion. It's a very momentous occasion for me personally. And again, on a personal note, and I'm not astaghfirullah trying to, but just uh, I want to tell you how I feel right now that for me, I've been teaching the seerah for 10 years nonstop. Non-stop, 10 years I've been teaching. And to come to the end finally in a manner that is so thorough for me personally, uh, I am very humbled and I feel that this is something that I can, inshallah, inshallah, uh, inshallah, I hope that Allah puts this in my mizan. And by complete coincidence, actually, I'm actually turning 40 in a few days. Complete coincidence. So for me, this is like my decade of my 30s was like spent in this project of the seerah. And I'm very happy that I could not think of a better thing to spend my time on. Literally 10 years have gone by without exaggeration since I came back from Medina. This has been my main focus is to spread the seerah and alhamdulillah now I'm coming to uh, the end and quite literally in a few days I'm now hitting the big uh, hallmark of the midlife careers that happen. So I feel that inshallah this was a decade that I ask Allah, Allah accepts this from me and uh, causes this to whatever in the English language at least become a resource and a reference uh, for uh, the people who speak English. And of course this is not the final because nobody finishes the seerah. It's infinite. Nobody, people will come after and do a better job, no doubt. But I wanted my seerah to have two things. Number one, academic rigorous excellence. We go back to the original sources, give you details you've never heard of. And number two, relevance to modern society. This is, these two have always been my ultimate goal. That going back to the, all of the sources, and uh, this is something that inshallah you have noticed in me. I go back to the sources and do that. And then not just that, but to analyze it, not just to quote, but to make it relevant. How can it improve me in my life in this land, in this time, in this place? And of course, the second point always changes. So a hundred years from now, somebody else has to come and do the seerah for that society. Nobody can ever finish the seerah. But my goal, at least for this era, for this generation, inshallah, to make it as relevant as possible, especially for our youth who don't have access to those classical books. They're not going to read the massive encyclopedias. So to summarize it, and it is a summary, by the way, I've said this a number of times, it's a comprehensive and advanced summary. I would say this is intermediate to high advanced, but it is not complete. Obviously, if you want to go beyond this, then it's a whole different you know, level of going into each riwayah and where it's found. But I do feel confident to say that in the English language, inshallah ta'ala, as of yet, there is nothing that I know of that is uh, to this level. And I ask Allah Azza wa accepts this uh, from me. I also uh, ask uh, Allah Azza wa to bless all of those who helped uh, throughout these uh, many years that I've done it. Uh, first and foremost, obviously, my wife and my family, they have suffered immensely uh, from me being in my room throughout the day and night with uh, the door closed or whatnot and not helping out. This is definitely without the blessings of Allah and then their support. Wallahi, nothing can be done. Uh, having a good spouse and a good partner, without that, there's nothing you can do. So, alhamdulillah, may Allah bless them immensely uh, and, and reward their sacrifices. My children, uh, even today, so many times, my little daughter comes up for her things and what I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I can't do it right now. I can't even play with her because I'm preparing this and that's painful, every father knows this. But I ask Allah Azza wa Jal accepts from them. And I also like to thank Memphis Islamic Center, the MIC, uh, for hosting this. Uh, uh, we have, alhamdulillah, uh, uh, the videos that are that are being broadcast on MIC and being recorded on MIC premises that alhamdulillah millions of people uh, have seen this and uh, this is something all of you in Memphis know alhamdulillah that 
MIC's videos are broadcast in international satellite stations from India to the Middle East to, uh, to the Caribbean. When I went, they had a satellite on the MIC's channel. They were, they were taking that. So Alhamdulillah, these videos that are being recorded are actually being broadcast quite literally around uh, the globe. And mashallah, we have a team of volunteers uh, that have done a great job uh, you know, Brother Danish and Brother uh, Hasnain as well, and Brother Zain and all of the other brothers, Brother Mustafa, uh, all of them that I haven't mentioned as well. They've done a great job volunteering uh, to, to uh, make sure that this is done. Alhamdulillah, we've also had a great crowd here. MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. We've had the note taker who has insisted I don't mention his name, so I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, we have all of the other people. Uh, when I go places, people ask me, who is so-and-so? Who is so-and-so? So the note taker is one of them. The flyer distributor is another. So they know there are people behind the scenes they don't know their names, realize that they also have a huge uh, role. May Allah Azza wa accept uh, from all of them. And may Allah Azza wa as He has gathered us here today for the love of the Prophet may He also gather us with Him physically in Jannatul Firdaus Al-A'la. And with that, I will conclude. And